Today on the Cameron Journal podcast, we have J. Scott Christensen. We're here to talk about tech, AI, machine learning, and the future of the economy. This is a great follow-up to the conversation I had with Joshua Pierce, um, which is a previous, well, the last interview that I've done before this one. So if you heard that and you wanted to learn more and dig into that topic more, then this is the interview for you. So strap in, everyone. It's the Cameron Journal podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we have J. Scott Christensen. He is an expert in AI and machine learning and the Internet of Things and all the technical stuff that inevitably affects our lives, but none of us understand. So he is here to explain why the machines are taking over and how we can prevent Mad Max Fury Road. So, hi, Scott. Welcome to the Cameron Journal Podcast. Uh, Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I don't know that I can uh, prevent Mad Max from happening, but I'll do my best. Um, uh, But you're right. Uh, Machine learning, AI, it's getting incorporated into all sorts of things all around us all the time. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, and then we'll discuss the machines that are taking over our lives. Okay, sounds great. Well, I ran an IT business for about 18 years and then started doing some teaching at the University of Missouri, and that eventually evolved into a full-time job teaching students about information systems and project management and about these emerging technologies. So things such as Internet of Things, blockchain, and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so... It's a great job. I really love it. It's kind of a second career for me, and it's allowed me to keep in touch with technology and also help prepare the next generation to deal with this ever-changing world and the big challenges that we have ahead in it. Yeah, and I and I want to dive right into the big challenges because um, in the last interview I had with the podcast, we interviewed a man named uh, Joshua Pierce who is similarly affected to you. He works at the University of Michigan, and he is in the open source and 3D printing space. We were talking about his book on how to use open source things to improve your life and get into 3D printing and do hobbies and all this stuff very cheaply. And (laughs) we had this very troubling conversation because... I was saying, you know, automation is coming, all these things are coming, you know, decentralized manufacturing is coming, all this sort of thing. And that's not good for a global economy that's based on industrialization. This is not great. Um, And I I work in journalism, an industry that's already been decimated by this stuff. So Mm -hmm. I've kind of already lived this story. And it gave him it gave him some pause and we ended up actually ending the podcast and then talking for 15 more minutes and creating some bonus content. So I kind of want to talk about the same thing about AI and machine learning is in terms of in terms of economic changes with AI and machine learning. How fast, how long do we have? Like, how fast is this happening? What are we phasing and how long do we have before we really start to feel the effects of it in greater society? 
Well, unfortunately, I think the COVID crisis has kind of moved the future forward. So things that may have taken 10 years are going to come about in this next year, especially as our economies reopen and companies try to kind of reimagine their businesses. So you look at things like online grocery sales that were very low uh, percentage of grocery sales previously are now into the 20% range. I personally have been using Amazon Fresh, and I don't think I will ever go to a grocery store ever again. <laughs> right. So right now we have um, a Hy-Vee's here in town, and, and we have three big Hy-Vee stores. And, of course, there's tons of employees just running around with carts and a little checklist on an iPad looking for various products. Well, why do we even have a store like that? I could see that in the next year we might have a, a high V that would be totally automated where things would come in and uh, they would either be refrigerated or frozen or not. And they would then be directed out through some sort of robotic system to uh, package up those groceries. And there are several uh, companies that are working on those types of automation systems. And uh, I could see that we could see, you know, big changes like that. Now, that's an area where you're displacing some workers, but maybe those workers can go work in a different industry. When you start to get into AI and we start to say, well, what if, what if AI machine learning could reconcile accounts and could do my taxes for me? Right. And what if we just needed one AI to do everybody's taxes in the United States? Well, now you're talking um, a different level of people that have a, much higher training, much higher investment in their education, getting a CPA and all that kind of stuff. Those people de being displaced, well, there's a big um, vacuum that's left in our economy. So whether it is work that you do with your body, with your hands um, or your back, or it's work that you do with your brain uh, in a computer system, there's really a big problem here as far as how we deploy automation uh, and its impact on our economy. And there's been different proposals for this. So Bill Gates has proposed the idea that robots or automation algorithms should pay a tax, just like you and I pay income tax. Um, others have thought about this idea of a universal basic income. So we've uh, um, seen... People like Kao Fu Lee, who wrote a, a really good uh, book called AI Superpowers, uh, look at this. He didn't call it a universal basic income, but he basically proposed that you might pay people for other types of valuable work. So, for example, producing an excellent podcast like this one, maybe that would be uh, some creative work that benefits society and would be paid for uh, uh, off the dividends of these automations. And, of course, we've had other folks that have uh, proposed universal basic income and actually some countries that I think are going to be experimenting with this as they come out of the COVID crisis. So I think Spain is one to watch on that, where they have had huge numbers of unemployment, upward of 50 percent prior to the COVID crisis in certain demographic groups. And so they're looking at this as a way to kind of keep their economy functioning. But you're exactly right. And I wish I had the one answer uh, <laughs> to uh, fix this problem. But I think it's one that we have to be thinking about as we're deploying these. And I am afraid that what we're going to see is the economy gears back up and companies are making investments 
into expanding their services and getting their businesses going, they're not going to make those investments in people. Okay? And we've seen this time and time again. In the United States, manufacturing has been going continuously upward for the last 20 or 30 years. It just employs a third of the people that it used to. Exactly. We just automate that. Now, there's probably some things that should be automated, you know, uh, that are dangerous, that are hard hard to do. Uh, A friend of mine was talking about use of drones in the construction industry because uh, instead of having some supervisor walk around and, you know, accidentally get run over by a bulldozer, um, you can actually send a drone out to take a look at what's going on. Uh, So there's lots of ways that it can improve safety and then we can see people working alongside these uh, automation tools. But um, yeah, it's going to be a big, big impact and something we need to start thinking through. And that kind of brings me to a a philosophical question that I, I don't understand about the technology industry in that the tech seems very good at coming up with an ever wider offering of very wonderful and eclectic things. But the discussion about how it affects greater society never seems to enter in until the change is either done, re-social media, or it's really just like about to happen. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, we need to like retrain 2 billion people who work in manufacturing. This will take decades. You have a year like that. It always seems to end up being that. And so one of the things I really wanted to ask you was why are these discussions never happening at tech firms? It's like Um, they don't live in a society. Like they just are not (laughs) conscious of the rest of us. Like we just don't exist. Yeah, so tech firms have had kind of this uh, halo around them, right? So that uh, we think of Steve Jobs, we think of Bill Gates, we think of uh, these leaders, and we tend to think of technology as almost being benign, right? Right. So uh, that it's not biased, it's not judgmental. but it is. There are ethics behind tech, these technologies. And unfortunately, that's become a system of, you know, moving fast and breaking things, as Facebook likes to say. And then they find out that everything is broken. Just like you're saying, we're saying that it seems like they can't even imagine how their technology could be used in a, in a bad way. I mean, they created this, you know, Facebook live streaming, and then they're shocked when somebody has a murder that they've live streamed. Well, I think, you know, if you've watched any Twilight Zone episodes or yeah. uh, Black Mirror, you should have been able to predict that this might be an issue. Um, yeah. Or Red Dial M for Murder by Agatha Christie, where someone right. hears a murder over the phone, which was the 1940s version of that like right yeah yeah exactly so uh and you've also had regulators that have been shy or not good at understanding what the technology is doing and you can look at this from a couple different standpoints uh, uber is one where they would just go into cities and they would break the rules and they found that the fines were so low uh, that it was better for them to go into the city, break the rules, and then pay any fines. And usually by then you had a big enough population that liked the service. And they could actually um, just ignore these laws that were by very put in place by various municipalities for taxi services and what it took and the insurance you needed and everything else. 
and uh, we're successful in doing so. And I think that you were talking about automation, but another big problem we have right now is this whole gig economy thing, right? So yeah. uh, originally it was kind of put forth this is utopia. Well, Scott, you're a professor, but you know, maybe you've got the afternoon off and you could just take your car and you could drive some people around and make a little extra money. Uh, right. Well, right. now we have people that are um, buying up houses for Airbnb or putting, uh, you know, buying a car and then going to pay that off by driving it. Well, um, they're not getting health insurance. They're uh, often some of these companies are taking their tips so I don't know if you've seen this with Grubhub and a couple of other companies yeah. where if uh, somebody, uh, you know, was paid $6 to bring uh, a pizza to my house and I tipped them $3, then what they did was they took that $3 out of their $6, right? So they still got $6, they can get $9. Um, so some of these companies are just, uh, you know, unethical. Uh, they also have this idea that you need to grow really fast. And in fact, a lot of these companies never make money or have never made money uh, and Look are just trying Uber. to. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. I just I used to tell my students um, there was an Uber service in New York City where I think it was for $100. You could go from downtown New York City on a helicopter to uh, LaGuardia. And it cost Uber like $200 to offer that service. Now, so I was like, anytime you're in New York, you need to take this just so we can stick it to Uber. <laughs> so- <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I was. I heard a podcast one time where someone, I think it was Scott Galloway from Pivot, who mm-hmm. said literally with Uber, they are subsidizing the ability yep. for for professionals to basically have a car service. Like by the grace of SoftBank in Japan, we are able yep. to use Uber because they've never made a dollar in their whole history of the company. Um, and when it comes to those jobs and things like that, looking on that, I don't think people realize, and I think this is what I, I fear with AI and machine learning is the gig economy has is no longer just people picking up extra side work. It's people who do it 12 or 14 hours a day, right. and it's their job. I mean, if we didn't have people doing that, there would be no Uber and no food delivery in the entire city of Seattle. And around right. here, it tends to be immigrants who take it on because it's easy. It's low entry. They can lease a car through Uber. Like, they can just sort of, you know, do it, but then they end up doing it 14 hours a day. And I, I worry that that sort of thing, that's the future of work. Mm-hmm. And that's a very frightening future. Yeah. And again, no one in tech ever seems to have thought about, oh, what are we really doing here? How is this going to change the job market? Oh, we're taking advantage of people. Or like these conversations, and they get on television and they act like it's news to them. And it's mm-hmm. like, have you ever talked to anyone who drives for you? Have you looked at the, the, you're all about big data. Have you ever looked at the metrics for how long your drivers are on the app and driving for you? Has no one ever looked at those numbers and been like, these people are just working for us. Like, right. Like it, it just, there just seems to be this sort of blank space in tech about all of these issues. And it just never gets talked about. Well, and I think another thing is that regulators have just been, I don't know if it's just too shy, too ignorant, um, too politically captured. We, we have what we call regulatory capture where yes. um, you have people from industry, these industries going into the regulation of these industries. Um, and that's a whole revolving uh, door that's truly worrisome. Right. So uh, President-elect Biden uh 
has put forth uh, Mayor Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, I believe, as the Labor Secretary. Yeah. So that's going to be interesting to see how um, how that plays out, and so that will have a big impact on how we look at federal employment law uh, and those labor laws, and see if these re- re- stand- these standards are kind of rewritten. So California has passed an act to make these gig economy workers uh, more like full-time employees. And some people have really uh, put forth the idea that you really should be having full-time employees. So, for example, if your local hardware store employs three people at 20 hours a week so they don't have to pay any benefits, let's put a tax on that compared to having one person or one and a half people or two people that um, work full-time. So how do you incentivize uh, businesses to provide that full-time employment, to provide those benefits. So, uh, yeah, it's very interesting, and I think we're getting to a kind of a crisis point uh, in the United States on this, and I think uh, the coronavirus has also exposed how fragile a lot of these systems are. Yeah, that's that's. I, I, I think it has, and I think it's. this is kind of a very timely a timely moment to, to kind of... Um, have those conversations mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and to that with you know our lives have changed so much in the last year and it's it's been almost a year since the pandemic started seems like 10 but it's only been a year um diving into kind of the internet of things for a moment which is ai and machine learning all this sort of thing Get, paint is a future like we're we have alexa now we have Google Assistant, all these sorts of these these things are starting to creep into our homes. How how bad is it going to get? <laughs> like, you know, kind of what's going to happen with that, especially now that we've pressed fast forward on the future. Well, uh, I'm generally an optimist, so I think there are some places that we can be optimistic. Uh, I think that when we start to look at uh, things like medicine, I think that's a place where we can op- be optimistic that AI is going to uh, help doctors do their job better and more efficiently and certainly faster. Uh, I think there's some other areas. So even journalism, it's kind of interesting about how AI is being used by Wall Street Journal and several other uh, publications to actually write articles. Now, they're very formulaic articles. For example, uh, financial results um, is one area where now they sports can... Sports scores. Sports scores, things yeah. like that. And uh, they can offer then uh, very niche types of articles. So if I'm very interested in a very particular, um, you know, the fruit uh industry, uh, they maybe can come out with a paid newsletter now that is mainly AI written that is about the dynamics of the fruit industry and how that's changing. And it comes out every day and there's a new article. So that also opens up other opportunities, right? So it uh, allows them to do things they couldn't really put a full-time reporter on, but they could uh, have an AI assistant reporter to manage a number of niche uh, areas. So, um, yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball for everything, uh, but I think there's certain areas that we need to be especially careful, and that is ones that require some human judgment uh, and ones where bias can come into play pretty easily. So uh, facial recognition is one that uh, is 
subject to uh, bias because we train it on certain faces. So there was actually a gentleman um, that was arrested based on uh, facial recognition technology, and he wasn't charged but because uh, they found out he was not the right person. Okay, And so for African-Americans, uh, some of this technology doesn't work as well because it's been trained mainly on uh, you know, white males like myself. So it's going to identify me pretty easily, but other people of different ethnicities, different ethnic backgrounds may be significantly uh, less so, right? So right. Uh, doing things like that, uh, looking at sentencing guidelines, uh, looking at who we're going to admit into higher education institutions, who we're going to give a loan to, those types of things... It, you might think, oh, well, this machine is going to be unbiased, right? Where Scott might be biased in his judgment, whether implicitly or explicitly. Yeah. Well, it turns out that uh, there can be all sorts of biases in these AI or machine learning algorithms as well. And so uh, I really think we need to have kind of a slowdown uh, in these applications of AI in these areas where we really need human judgment involved. One of the things that I find interesting about artificial intelligence that I think most people don't know is the people who design these things don't exactly understand how the AI comes to its decision. Someone right. described it as kind of a black box scenario. Yeah. And there's, there's concerning. Like, like I'm just like starting to ask like, like dumb people questions about this. Like, is that concerning? Like, should we be worried about this sort of thing? Like, cause you'll hear these bits and be kind of like, well, that's pretty frightening. <laughs> yeah, so there's uh, for us as kind of being the consumers or people that are not designing these things, there's generally two black boxes. One is the data that's been trained on. We don't always know what that data is. Right. Uh, and then the other is the algorithm that the machine has learned on its own. Uh, and so there have been numerous examples of researchers being able to trick AIs. And whether that is a falsely identifying a stop sign because the AI was not trained to look for something that are, that's an octagon, says stop, and is red, but was instead looking at other aspects of its design. Uh, that's kind of a classic example. But there's several other examples of what we call adversarial AI, where we find out we can trick it because we don't know the criteria that it is honing in on. And so... Uh, that's another whole area that we have to be concerned about uh, and that can lead to uh, bias, especially if we try to apply an AI to do something that is out of the bounds of what has been trained to do. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that is a sort of concerning thing, like, you know, when, because we're going to be facing this, like, when an, IA, when an AI does something wrong, when something goes wrong, there's never going to be a, for us a way to really say, here's how it came to its conclusion. Here's what went wrong. Because no human being actually knows the answer to that question. I right. think that's so it's difficult. Like, that should all give us all pause. Like, let's just, you know, we've created something oh, yeah. whose decision-making process we do not fully understand. That's concerning. Yes. Yes. And, uh it's one thing if you're identifying different plants, right? And right. if it's accurate enough, we don't care, right. right? But if it's making a decision about whether I get a loan or not, well, I'd kind of like to know why I didn't get the loan. Uh, and I think uh, we 
don't even know sometimes the data that's being used. So you talk about social media, when it provides me with a feed or certain recommendations, I don't even know the data it's collecting, right? So is it collecting data about my likes? Is it collecting data about what I post? Is it collecting data just based on my demographics? And that's the decision it's using to recommend things to me. You know, one of the things that um, is concerning is not only how these AIs are being used in social media to feed you things that may keep you angry, right? right? So uh, you may uh, be more valuable to Facebook if you're angry and always on there complaining. And unfortunately, we're we're recording this on January 7th, so uh, a couple days after we've seen uh, uh, some... Uh, unrest and uh, I don't know what we want to call it exactly at the Capitol. It's kind of unprecedented uh, uh, events. Here at but the Cameron Journal, thi- we're calling it a coup attempt. A coup attempt? Okay. <laughs> yes, that's that's our official position. <laughs> um, but you think about how these things are organized online. Well, it's one thing if I go online and I'm like, oh, you know, I want to I want to join some group that's going to have a coup. Okay, that's Scott seeking something out. It's another thing if Scott happens to be, you know, on Facebook, minding his own business, and Facebook says, oh, there's this group. I don't know what it's all about, but um, it has a Q something in it. And uh, uh, it seems like Scott Christensen is a 52-year-old white male uh, that makes this much money. Uh, He might be a good candidate for this. So is it now suggesting, Scott, would you like to join this QAnon group? Okay, so that's where we get into some really dicey areas with these so-called platforms, or even just because feeding bad information, which you know can be QAnon, or just something as silly. And this is truly silly. Um, on TikTok, there's now this whole community of people who don't believe that Helen Keller is real, that she was not a real person, <laughs> that she could not have been deaf and blind and have written books and all this type of thing. And and we, we laugh, but there's 17-year-olds out there on TikTok who are absolutely convinced that their history books are lying to them because someone posted it, it got into TikTok's algorithm, and now it's a whole thing. Right. And, 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 and that's huh? stupid and mundane and probably won't kill anybody. But just yesterday, because we're recording this on January 7th, just yesterday we saw the result of what happens when you allow years and years of information to go by. People start seizing national buildings and sending our elected representatives to hide in the basement. Like, that's both extreme ends of what these algorithms can do. Right. And where is the loss of trust? Right. right? And what is a fact? So um, it may be harmless to believe that the moon landings were fake. But what does that do for your sense of how the world works? Right? Yes. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I have a friend of mine. He he likes to go to the other extreme. So like when someone he was a public official here. And so uh, when somebody would say something like uh you know, the moon landings are fake. He'd be like, oh, my God, you don't still believe in the moon, do you? <laughs> <laughs> that's a hologram. Yeah, that's, been a, that's been in place since World War II. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, that's where I, I, I feel. And that's, I feel like this is also difficult to regulate because since no human understands what the AI is doing or what the algorithms are doing, like no one person can sit down and say, here's how it works. I feel like that causes legislative paralysis. We don't mm-hmm. know how it works, therefore we can't regulate it. And because right. we can't regulate it, it then runs amok. 
Right. And I think you have to, you know, get out in front of it and say, if you can't explain it and we can't understand it, you can't do it. Okay. Let's wait till you get the technology perfected to where we can have some sort of framework for this. But, um, yeah, and, you know, in my industry, uh, when we look at uh, using AIs and machine learning algorithms for things like admissions, um, I think it's very dangerous because the institutions of higher education often have goals that are not in line with the publics or the students. For example, we want to be prestigious. How can we get prestigious? Well, we can turn away more students. Right. Okay, is that really in line with a public land grant university mission? I would hope not. <laughs> mm, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, and I think if we step back and uh, thought about it, we wouldn't think so. But if we would turn a machine, the admission process over to a machine learning algorithm and say, uh, manipulate the, the admissions so that we move up in our rankings. Well, now you've unleashed kind of a monster that one you don't understand, like you just mentioned, but also is going to uh, not really uh, be beneficial to society or to our students. Yeah, and I, I think what I find frustrating, and this, is, and this is where I say I wish tech led the way on this, and I feel like all of them slept through all their history classes in college because this has already happened in history. Harvard, this is sounds dated, but... Harvard was complaining that there were too many Jewish people going to Harvard. So with the advent of photography, they made students submit a photo of themselves and they would judge them based on their uh, nose so that they could eliminate uh -huh. Jewish entrances into Harvard. This is about, eight, about right after the Civil War or so. Photography had just come along so they could get away with this. And, and so we've, we've already seen that and it was a huge... It was... It eventually became a scandal and it was a whole thing. And it's kind of, it's held as an example of, you know, here's what anti-Semitism looks like in case you were curious. Um, and, and I feel like we're getting back to the same, to the same place to where it's kind of like, okay, well, we want our more diverse student body. Therefore, we should let in a whole bunch of more, of more minorities, which leaves a bunch of white students who could be poor or first in their family, whatever have you, from getting in and having this great opportunity. Or there are Asian people suing Harvard right now because Harvard was not wanting so many Asian students. Like, this kind of thing. And I feel like all of these problems get way worse when you let the computers do it. Because mm -hmm. we don't know what they did or why. It's a mystery. Right, and you're not, and you're not, having, and you're not having that discussion. You're not having um, some you know, justification of, of how you're going to make these decisions. And uh, if you and I have to make decisions about who gets into a school, we're going to have some rationale right. that we're going to think through. And uh, you mentioned Professor Galloway from NYU, and I'm a big fan of his as well. And I would reiterate what he said is that uh, higher education has lost the script. You know, why are we uh, looking at this system as one that has to be elite why do we have to admit students to be able to take my course? Why don't we just say anybody who wants to take my course, you can take my course. You know, I don't understand that. Uh, why we aren't going, well, I understand it because that would mean that we're not as elite and we wouldn't be right. as highly ranked. But uh, why not expand more education to more people? Why not have education look like uh, something different? for different people. We don't all learn the same way. My wife is uh, 
actually does have a PhD. I'm, I'm the professor, but I don't have a PhD. I'm what they call professionally certified. But um, she loves to learn just for learning. You know, she is uh, the great, you know, example of an academic, and that's wonderful. Um, I'm the type of person that I will learn it if I need yeah. to use it. Right. So um, very different style, very different uh, way to uh, um, get in information and very different motivations. And that's the same sort of thing with my my students. So I often have some of my colleagues that ask, well, why don't these students want to learn? Well, they do. It's just we they haven't got to the point where they need to learn yet. Right. So they don't have that need for it. And some people like to learn for learning's sake and some need to do it because they're going to try and execute some project. So uh, I think we got to really take this crisis, I hope, to really rethink our higher education systems. You know, I could really see a, a system by which Professor Galloway, which is a, he's a very well-known professor. Maybe he teaches a course and I'm his, you know, high-level TA. I'm his, I'm the faculty advisor for a cohort of people that are taking his course. That I have a section of 30 students. He's teaching the large lecture, designing everything. You know, I think that would be an interesting way to kind of hybridize the local and the online because a lot of students are not successful online they need they need a local person they need that kind of social interaction so i would love to see different models explored like that where we could combine uh, some of these things make higher education more open for more people and hopefully make well, it a and lot that is actually too. a wonderful bridge to another kind of the one other topic i wanted to talk about which was education and technology in covid my hypothesis is this, and I think it will be borne out in time. The education students have received over the last 13 months is a joke. I'm going to be blunt. It's terrible. There's going to be a huge skills gap. I feel sorry for ever. I feel sorry for students who graduated in 2020 because I graduated in 2009. I know what they're going through. I went to grad school to escape. Didn't work, but that's what I did. Uh -huh. um, and I feel <laughs> bad for the kids, especially in like grade school level, who are trying to learn multiplication online. Like, and so when people say, oh, this could be a huge renaissance in remote learning for students and all this type of thing, this will change public education. I'm like, not, not so fast. Like, I get for yeah, some reason, know, um... sensory stuff and all that sort of thing. Remote learning is a godsend. But I just feel like we're going to be leaving a lot of students behind if we try to force this whole in-person, online, who cares? Do what's convenient for your kids sort of thing. I don't think that's a good future. And I wanted to get yeah. your take on that. So I think you got to separate out K-12 from higher education. Absolutely. It's a very different I would even say high school, um, higher experience. ed from middle school and below. That's different worlds. Yeah. Different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think in higher education, we may see a more diverse model after this. Um, I have some students. Uh, I was talking with one. Actually, we were catching up over coffee at 8 a.m. this morning. Uh, she's an accounting student and she really likes her online courses. She says, you know, I hope I don't ever have to go back to campus. I have other students that say, uh, well, I had one actually in a graduate course uh, this fall. And uh, we had I had a small group of them over to our backyard because we have a very big backyard and we could socially distance around the fire. And 
she was just so excited to see some fellow students face to face, right? Because she really loves yeah. that social interaction. So I think what we're going to have is we're going to have a more diverse setting, hopefully, where people can mix and match according to their learning styles and what they're having to deal yeah. with. Because a lot of my students are taking care of their parents or grandparents. They're doing a lot of right. lot of work, right? And they're going to unfortunately have to. Uh, K-12, I think you're exactly right. Uh, boy, we've got to do everything we can to get this vaccine, um, you know, ramped up. And for all of us to be uh, in line, ready to get vaccinated uh, so that we can and wear our masks and still socially distance so that we can get these uh, schools fully open. Because I that is where I really worry. Um, as far as a skills gap, like at the higher education level, um, my students generally have been uh, doing well at at least getting the major topics. We don't cover, and I think it's been kind of good for me in some ways too, because I had to narrow it down. Like, okay, I was to just have my students walk away from this with five things for this well, month. Yeah, what would they right. be? It kind of focuses <laughs> you. Know? you know? And. Right. So I'm not throwing in the kitchen sink and this other example. And oh, by the way, have you heard of this? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm really concentrating on just a few things, which is probably good. That's probably all they're going to yeah. remember. Right. So if I think back on my my courses, there's probably in each course, a, you know, four or five things I can recall from it. But, um, you know, I think that's that's one area where we can I think that can be made up in some ways um, once students uh, do graduate. Um, so I'm less concerned about uh, higher education students. I am concerned about 12. Um, I guess the good news is this is global. So it's not like just the students in California or just the students in Missouri are experienced in this. This is students all over the world. And I think, um, you know, we're going to have to adjust as we uh, deal with students uh, in college that were in high school during, you know, this pandemic time. And so we're going to have to... Uh, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, some sort of uh, remedial or how we're going to cope with that, but we're going to have to rethink a little bit about how we accommodate these students. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I think, I think it's, I think it's really time to, you know, really, really have a think about it because there's going to be some, like I said, rule of a third, you're going to have some that liked it better and they might have learned better remotely. You're going to have the middle third that they, they do okay. They're, they're not excelling but they're fine. And then you have the bottom third that's getting left behind and they right. need that personal in-person attention to get them where they need to go sort of thing like that. Yep. You know, and I, and I feel like we're talking a lot about group a, we're kind of ignoring group B and there's like five or 10 of us that are concerned about group C and no, and, and that's it. Like nobody else is really yeah. talking about group C that's yeah. really hurting no. out of all of this. And it's going to affect, they're not going to get into higher education. They won't get as high as paying jobs in an economy that's changing. See our conversation 20 minutes ago, right. um, you know, all this sort of thing. Like this has real long-term consequences that we'll be living with for decades. Yep. Yep. You know, and what I see, too, is that students are um, I had one student that it was a pretty sad situation that um, in the spring when we he had to go back uh, home and do remote classes, uh, he was going back into very bad 
you know, living situation. Right. Uh, and uh, that student, you know, it just went downhill quickly for him. Uh, and so it's not just the format. It's also the situation that they're having to cope with or deal with. Um, and, you know, socialization, uh, making a connection with the professor, that's actually one of the biggest um things that drive student success is if I can have a personal connection with that student in some way, then that student is going to be motivated and it's going to um, be successful. Um, if they feel like I, they know me and I care about them and I'm interested in them uh, and I do everything I can, I mean, it's, it's limited. I give them, uh, you know, my cell phone and they can text me and try to have, uh, you know, little videos to kind of show me and my dog and talking about what's going on. And so they know I'm struggling too. But, um, you know, I think you're exactly right. And I, I don't know that there's a good solution except to uh, just wear a mask and, you know, hope we can get this through as fast as possible. Yeah, I, I have a kind of a unique experience with online learning. So my graduate program, Norwich University um, in Vermont, they're, because they're camp, because they're in Vermont and they don't have a lot of land, because Vermont is very mountainous, their graduate program has always been distance learning. So before the internet, it was by correspondence. When the internet came along and it was online, and so I did my undergrad in person. I did my grad program online. And if I had my druthers, I would have reversed those two. Uh -huh. um, just because if I, you know, I would probably would have been a better undergrad student if it had been online and I had partied less. I'll own that. Um, <laughs> And um, and then my graduate program, I missed, I would have really loved to have had those like in-class, in-person discussions because I have my master's degree is in terrorism and asymmetrical warfare. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I really, the, the forum just didn't, wasn't the same as having that in-person discussion. It just wasn't the same. And if I had my choice, I would have reversed it. Because I could have done without undergrad discussion. That was, you know, not riveting and I didn't care. But um, it would have been really nice. But I mean, to your point about connection with a professor, I never felt connected with any of my professors at undergrad. Most of my professors mm -hmm. didn't even want me in the program. One of them my freshman year told me I needed to do something else. Um, and there was always kind of this group of students at the front of the class who I'm, I'm biracial and I went to a school that only had 400 students of only 400 black students, only a mm. thousand students of color. And I was one of five people of color in my whole poli sci program. And oh, wow. yeah, there was always this cabal of like straight white dudes at the front of the class that seemed to be great friends with the professor. And I was never invited, desired nor required in the little <laughs> love fest at the front of the classroom. I just left quietly sort of thing. Um, I think there's something to that because I think if I, I think if it had been different and more welcoming, I would have been more invested in a different way. Whereas, especially by my senior year, I was there just to pass the class and move on. Like mm -hmm. at some point I kind of quit caring. It's a kind of like, okay, I have to deal with you for 12 weeks. Fine. Let's get this over with sort of thing. Um, just because no one really cared. So I think there is something to that. And I think that personal that personal connection is the piece that we either have to figure out for remote learning or we have to recreate some other way. There's yeah. something about that that we can't leave behind. Well, uh, you know, way. 
Yeah, so uh, class size is a big part of that. Uh, unfortunately, I have at my undergraduate level, I'll have 600 students this semester. Right. Well, you uh, get to know maybe 40 of them, right? right? Yeah, of uh, course. And you get to know some that do reach out and, and need extra help. And so I'll get to know them as well. Um, <laughs> I had this student that uh, it was pretty hilarious Uh he was having a lot of difficulties, but I gave him my, my cell phone. So he'd text me and be like, you know, I don't understand. What am I supposed to do with this? And and I didn't tell him, well, read the directions, which is <laughs> your natural inclination. But yeah. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I explained it wrong here. I made a little video for you that shows you how to do it, you know. And then the next thing would come up and I would once again, you know, not put it on him. I'd be like, oh, I must have not explained that well again. <laughs> So I did it again. And so um, after one of these, he, he wrote me back. He says, Professor Christensen, you know, keep your chin up. You're doing a good job. <laughs> I was, and I was like, okay, this student just went from being my least favorite student to now my most favorite student. <laughs> because he's trying to cheer me on. Yeah. And so anyway, it was hilarious. So we this went on for the entire semester, uh, you know, at all hours. Because, of course, I go to bed at like 9. Right. And I get up at 5. And it's kind of hilarious because they'll be texting me at two. Of course, I've got my notifications turned off. And of course, I then respond to those at five. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, so I also had a graduate class that we had 10 students. Yeah. Um, and then we were online. It was heavily discussion based. Yeah. You know, we but set the a totally different experience. Yeah, it was totally different. We all yeah. got to know each I feel like I know all those students very well. Um, we had, uh, you know, excellent discussions, excellent interactions with guests. Um, so that's also part of the, you know, problem, if you will, is that we aren't always customizing the uh, classes and the media and the class size <clears throat> for the type of format we want. So maybe, you know, this type of decision making about terrorism or, or whatever is uh, best done um, by us or best taught by small group discussions. So we need to have a class capped at seven students. And okay, well now here's a technical thing about how to enter data into a spreadsheet. Okay, yeah, we can have two thousand students in that thing, right? And we we'll get a couple TAs to help people out when they get confused. So um, that's I think. Part of the issue, too, is we don't always think about the subject and then say, well, you know, here's really what we have to do to have uh, to modulate that class size to have a really good quality experience. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and higher education just has so many different things tugging at it. Uh, it's not that people, you know, don't want to have good quality. Um, There's just, you know. A lot of states like ours here in Missouri have essentially divested themselves of the state universities. So our funding has gone down to where tuition and all these other sources of money now constitute 60, 70 percent of our budget. Yeah. And so uh, it used to be that the state provided 80 percent of our budget. So, yeah, um, yeah, I also look at how much schools spend on sports and athletics and I start to become physically ill. Um, oh, yeah. Which when I was an undergrad, we had a whole discussion about that because our school became division one and they thought they had to keep up with CU Boulder. And some of us in the student body were like, not so fast. Like, that's not a thing that we'll be doing. 
Um, right. I mean, yeah, the, the funding thing with higher ed is definitely, I agree, if you are the state land-grant university, the state legislature needs to fork over some dough to support mm. programs and capital projects and all that type of thing. And I think, you know, every, all the state schools and all the states are always, you know, kind of facing that pressure from government as they try to, you know, get out of paying and try to figure out where the hell is the money going to come from. You know, right. That's and, um, a perpetual problem. And it's not just students that are going into debt, but uh, their parents, too. There was an article yes. in the New York Times in the last uh, well, the last month or so where I think it was called The Parent Trap or something like that. And they looked at uh, the amount of debt the parents were going into to send their students to the best school they can get into. Right. Now, I would not recommend sending your student, uh, especially at undergrad, to the best school you can get into. Go to the school that you can afford. Um I think uh, there's lots of other things to look for other than just getting a U.S. News and World Report and trying to look at, you know, what's the best school I can get into. Because if you look at the best schools this year, they're going to change next year, right? They'll flip in huge amounts. Like we just went up 15. Of course, we always put out a press release when we go up in the rankings. Yes. Uh, we're not going to put out a press release next year <laughs> when we go down in the rankings. Um, yeah. And yeah. – uh, those rankings can can once again be highly manipulated uh, manipulated um, by the institution itself um, and how it times things, what it offers, um, all sorts of ways. No, no, and yeah, so yeah. I would not use those as any sort of guide if I was a uh, parent. Yeah, the the and and it's funny because I. I entirely agree with you from a, a financial perspective, but then I also, you know, think of like, you know, Scott Galloway as well, who comes along and says, if you want to do really great things in your career in this day and age, you need to go to a really good school. And I can say as someone who went to the second tier school in their state, I did not go to CU Boulder or Colorado State University. I went to the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Um, uh-huh. It's usually reserved for the place you go if you can't get into the other two. Um, <laughs> and the, I mean, for me, all the professors from Boulder also taught at our school. So I got CU Boulder education at not CU Boulder prices. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like those really good schools also open up connections and opportunities that you don't even know about as well. And I feel like that's especially like, you know, for me, I'm was kind of a first generation. My parents didn't go to college, but other people in my family have. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like especially for your first generation students, it, it's really important you kind of catapult them into the halls of opportunity. And that's what happened to Scott Galloway. He was the son of a single mother in California, grew up poor AF. And right. but then he but then he went to really good California schools and now we're talking about him on this podcast. So But what, well, once again a state a state <laughs> a state school that he could afford, right? Yeah. So that he could work his way through Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um yeah. and uh, you know, one of the problems that you look at student debt too is often with um private for profit. Um so there's often Oh, Concord University, uh, other ones like that, that uh, will uh, set up a nursing program. 
And, uh, but you may pay $80,000, $100,000 for that nursing program. Well, that does not make any sense when you can get a better education somewhere else. But they kind of prey on these um, young people and their families. And so that's if you actually look at where the student debt problem is. A lot of it is centered in that whole profit, uh, for-profit uh, private uh, corporations that are doing this work. Oh, well, uh, and hopefully we'll have a secretary of education that will be willing to take that on um, and uh, look at regulation of these uh, institutions. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're coming up to the top of the hour, so I now is a good time for you to plug anything that we should be reading or listening to or watching to or aware of from you. Okay. Well, I got two things. One, I'm uh, just coming out with a new uh, website. It's christiansonjs.com. So you can find uh, various resources there. And you'll also find a link to my uh, monthly newsletter is called the Free Range Technologist. And uh, you can also go to frt.news and sign up. And that's a place where I just share, you know, interesting things I've found, things I'm reading. Uh, there's no ads or anything like that. Um, sometimes I'll say that I'm going to be on, uh, you know, Cameron's podcast or I was on pa Cameron's podcast or something like that. But uh, you can go there and find me there. And uh, it's kind of neat because you can also reply back uh, with what you have found and what you've discovered. So it's been a great way for me since I deleted my Facebook and Instagram accounts to actually keep in touch with students and so uh, and colleagues and um, uh, you all can join Excellent. as well. well. And dear listener, don't worry about writing all that down. It will be in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Cameron. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Fallon on Twitter, and we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.